Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people, um, and where I feel like we talk all the time about the roots of wokeness, and we have a lot of focus on where this ideology comes from, you know, sort of intellectual lineage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in this conversation, I often think we talk too little about why we really see that ideology gain institutional power starting not just a few years ago. And I would argue not, you know, some people want to drag it all the way back to 1776, right, with many stops in between, um, but in the 90s and um, with the discussion around political correctness, et cetera. So I think my guest this week has in some ways the most concrete and specific and therefore potentially actionable explanation for why we suddenly seem to live under a regime that adjudicates basically all questions, right, on a hierarchy of identities and oppressions, um, whether that's in in sort of the public context or whether that's in the private company context. I've been wanting to have her on here for quite a long time. Um, I think her work intersects uh, or intersectional, you're intersectional, Gail, <laughs> um, with many of the most important questions uh, that we have to be willing to deal with if we're ever going to find a way out of this mess. So uh, with that, I'm really pleased to welcome Game Har- Gail Harriet onto High Noon. Um, Gail's a professor of law at University of San Diego School of Law. Um, she is also on the U.S. Commission for Civil Rights, although she's not speaking in that capacity today. Um, Gail, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, thank you for having me on. So let's start with um, something that I think a lot of people forget, which is funnier because it's, it's not that long ago, um, but people think about the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, and they think about the entire you know, movement in the 1960s for that act. But they don't think a lot about the changes, some of them very substantive and important, that were made to this law in 1991. So can you maybe like in a broad brush way lay out some of the changes that you think have had a bigger impact than people perhaps think about on a day-to-day basis? I mean, it's interesting because in 1964, when Congress initially passed the Civil Rights Act that included Title VII, um, you know, that was a big change and everybody knew it was a big change. From then on, discrimination um, on the basis of race, sex, religion, or national origin um, in employment was forbidden all across the country. Um, and, you know, that seemed to everyone like a, a real sea change. And they don't really get into the sort of legal minutiae Um, that the Civil Rights Act of 1991 was all about. And it's not surprising. I mean, why should non-lawyers be paying attention uh, to things like, you know, proof of causation, you know, what sort of damages are are available? Uh, But in fact, it turned out to be much more important, I think, than the average American might have realized. And I think even much more important than the average member of Congress uh, realized. Uh, The one I've talked the most about um, is the change in the way that um, the remedies uh, for a Title VII action uh, were done. Back in 1964, um, only two kinds of of, of remedies, as we call them, were available to someone who could prove that they'd been discriminated against on the basis of race, color, sex, religion, or national origin. Number one, you could get an injunction. So if if someone had not been hired because of their sex um, or had not been given a promotion because of their race or had been fired because of their religion, they could get an injunction ordering that they be hired, that they be promoted or they be reinstated. Uh, The other thing they could get was lost wages. So if you hadn't been hired and you should have been, um, you could get money for that. Um, If you, you hadn't been promoted and you should have been, You could get money for those past lost wages. Same with someone who was wrongly fired. But that's all you could get. And, you know, when I tell my students about this, um, sometimes they think that the reason for that is that Congress wasn't really serious um, about about discrimination, that they didn't really care. And that's not that's not the reason Um, for non-lawyers. The reason is going to sound really weird, uh, but it's true. And that is that that Congress was trying to avoid the possibility that there would be jury trials. Uh, They didn't trust juries in the Jim Crow South to fairly apply the law. Um, So they limited the remedies. Um, And again, I bet you non-lawyers who are listening are thinking, what's that got to do with juries? And weirdly, it has a lot to do with juries. 
Um, if you look at the United States Constitution, the Seventh Amendment, um, and you read that amendment, it looks like um, we're guaranteed civil juries in lawsuits um, for which the damages are above a certain amount of money. Um, but it's not really true. Um, what's really true is that in the federal court, you're guaranteed a jury trial if the case were traditionally, and I know this is going to sound complicated to people who haven't gone to law school, but you have, um, if they, they, they have to be cases that traditionally would have been, been brought in courts that under old English law would be called common law courts. Um, and if it were instead the kind of case that would be brought before a court, that the old English courts called equity courts, there'd be no right to a jury trial. And I don't want to get too further into the weeds on that. It's just that this is one of the quirks in the world uh, that lawyers know about and non-lawyers tend not to. And that is whether um, the kinds of remedies one can get for a, for a, a, a lawsuit uh, will determine whether or not you can get a jury trial or not. And that's the reason um, that, that Congress did that. Um, but weirdly, it turned out to have been a good thing for other reasons. Uh, and when the, 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 the law was amended in 1991 to include punitive damages and damages for emotional distress, bingo, suddenly, suddenly employers were very worried um, about the possibility of Title VII lawsuits in a way they weren't before. Um, they, they were, in fact, I would say panic-stricken. If you look back at all the, 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 the things that were going on in the early 90s, oh, my goodness, employers were like going off the deep end, worrying about lawsuits, particularly harassment lawsuits. So I think we're all familiar with the the sort of um, archetypal uh, sexual harassment. You know, initially it was on, you know, CD-ROMs, right, that uh, people would have to watch and go through. Um, can you explain how loosening the remedy side and making it potentially much more lucrative to file a hostile uh, workplace environment suit or one of these these um, discrimination suits um, has worked with what was initially um, quite a vague definition of what discrimination actually looked like and why we didn't see that explode. Because I feel like um, the the rejoinder to people like Christopher Caldwell and, and others who have pointed to the Civil Rights Act and said basically we live under a different constitutional regime now than we did before the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that, you know, new constitution essentially has has created the world we live in today. They have an uphill battle to explain why it is that this really didn't take off in any serious way um, until the 90s. So how do those two halves work together, the definition side and the remedies? Yeah, it's funny because like back in the 1980s, the Supreme Court decides that that Harassment lawsuits are, in fact, viable lawsuits under under Title VII, and that would include sexual harassment. It would also include racial harassment. Um, but things didn't explode, uh, and they didn't explode because the remedies were very limited. So, really, if you were just bothered by some harassment, um, you know, that would not be enough reason to bring a lawsuit. So, like the Supreme Court de defines harassment in a way that, well you know, it's not really clear what they think should be covered. I mean, they're using very loose language um, and it's impossible for employers to tell what's going to constitute harassment and what won't, won't cost, constitute harassment. But unless the, the, the plaintiff has lost wages uh, or wants an injunction, um, there's very, it's very unlikely there's going to be a lawsuit. But as soon as the 1991 Act passed, suddenly there's all this pressure on that vague definition uh, of what constitutes harassment. I mean, what constitutes harassment was clearly in the eye of the beholder uh, under the definition that the Supreme Court was giving. Um, you know, it would, it, it would be harassment if, if somebody thinks of it harassment, but maybe somebody else would not think of it as harassment. Um, but once it became lucrative to sue, now there are all sorts of lawsuits and all sorts of arguments about what might constitute harassment. You know, it could be an, enough if the cumulative effect of lots of little tiny pin, pinpricks uh, might add up to an offensive environment. So you could have 
um, a, a large office with lots of different people working in it. One person happens to put up on the bulletin board a racy cartoon. Another one likes to call people dear. Uh, another one tells, you know, a dirty joke or so. Another one brings in a book that has like kind of a racy title. Um, and at some point that's going to add up to sexual harassment. Uh, I'm not talking about the, 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 the hardcore quid pro quo kind of, of sexual harassment where, where a woman is told if she doesn't um, engage in sexual relations with her supervisor, she'll lose her job. You can put that one to the side because those, those are quite serious allegations. But these hostile environment cases that are defined cumulatively, every employer in the country uh, was being told by their legal advisors, you got to make sure that you, you, you come in and you control employee behavior at the pinprick level, because those little pinpricks can add up. Uh, and if they do, you're going to be liable for real money. Um, and so bring on the trainers, bring on, um, you know, the, 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 the bureaucracy um, designed to make sure uh, that hostile environments don't develop. Um, and because employers really could only control this at the individual level of those individual small things, um, we started to get a really different um, kind of, of, of office culture than what we were used to, where, where employees, um, both men and women, uh, both African-Americans, Latinos, uh, whites, Asian-Americans, um, all felt like they started to have to walk on eggshells. Uh, that wouldn't have been true in the 1980s because the level of fear um, on the part of the employer was not so great. So what you're saying is, it you know, the concept that comes to mind as you're talking is microaggressions, right? Um, and we tend to think of this as something that came out of the academy. And, and yes, it did. And there's a story there. And I've, you know, had guests on to talk about that story and, and sort of the spread of these ideas from sort of the new left in the 60s in the universities and, and sort of graduating their little minions into every aspect of life. And that is a huge part of the story. But I think you have a much more convincing case as to why we really saw this break in the 90s, um, saw concepts like microaggression start to develop, right? Um, because there was this enormous incentive for a company of any size uh, to essentially make sure that anything that would be remotely considered offensive by anyone, right, by the most sensitive among us, um, potentially could cost them, you know, millions of dollars. So they became very, very CYA about the whole thing um, and, and quite tyrannical, you know, in, in doing that. Could you maybe just to like flesh it out a little bit, could you give us like an example of what a typical case might look like before these 91 revisions versus what the kind of case that you've seen in, in the in the last couple decades or more? In the 1980s, if you had a, a, a racial or sexual harassment case, uh, the amount of money that would be involved would be the amount of lost wages. And very often, you know, there are no lost wages. Um, and therefore, those cases tended not to be brought unless the person wanted an injunction. And that's a pretty heavy handed um, way of dealing with harassment. It's a good way to deal with, you know, not getting the job or not getting the promotion or getting fired unfairly. But most people don't want to bring an injunction where the court has to supervise whether or not, you know, somebody's joke is a little too, too off color. Um, and so, you know, what happened was a perfect storm. You know, suddenly real money is involved. So there would be the, the money that would be going towards punitive and emotional distress damages. Attorney's fees are involved. Um, and the cumulative nature of hostile, hostile environment cases so that you don't want to say don't engage in a hostile environment because that doesn't mean anything to anybody. The, the employer is going to go down for these individual little statements, um, individual things that could add up. And they've got to deal with it that way. Um, and then there's a Add to that, perfect storm, absolutely perfect storm. There are rules against retaliation against anyone who makes a Title VII claim. Um, and so what that means, um, if someone says, I believe I was discriminated against on the basis of race or sex, um, I didn't get the promotion, you can't retaliate against them. But when it comes to harassment, now if you're simply saying, hey, I believe I'm being harassed, you're not allowed to say, I think you're being overly sensitive. 
Um, you've got to treat it as, as if it's very seriously. The employer has to then handle every complaint uh, and every complainant with kid gloves. Um, so you start getting um, complaints that are really very minor. Uh, you bring in the trainers. You try to get people to not, um, you know, to, to understand they have to avoid even the smallest offense. Um, and that's big business. And over time, that has become a billion-dollar business. And they have to keep coming up with reasons that you need to keep using their training services. Uh, whether they're in-house or outside contractors, they want to stay relevant. So what do you have to do? You have to start inventing new and exciting ways to say, you know, here's something else you shouldn't do. And I think that's why the microaggression um, sort of thing took on new life. It was invented on campuses, um, but employers started hearing these training organizations and their in-house trainers saying, hey, not only do we have to avoid, you know, really offensive things like, you know, using epithets that never should be used in polite company, uh, but we have to remember that there are all sorts of little things that even nice people may not realize are offensive. So, in the 1990s, and even more so in the early 2000s, you started getting um, trainers who would tell people you should never say, never say that the job should go to the most qualified person. That's offensive. You should never say um, that, that men and women have equal opportunity. That's offensive. Um, so any kind of, of pushback um, on the, the, the harassment um, industrial complex, maybe we should call it. Um, all of that, all of that was off the table. You couldn't do that. Uh, so microaggressions, uh, and then that has morphed in more recent years into training on white privilege. Um, and they keep upping the ante. Yeah, there's there's this whole incentive structure here, right? Um, so leaving like ideology for a moment aside, um, there's just so many incentives for everybody involved, right? To keep this train continually pushing, as you say, towards ever, you know, ever more minute imaginations of, of oppression, because you know, the employees, to some extent, uh, benefit from it. If they can claim one of these identities, they have the potential for a very high payout. You know, the corporations, uh, they just want to avoid these high dollar lawsuits and potentially also the cultural impact of like having their, their company name splash across the papers for discrimination, which carries a heavy penalty in our society. Right. Um, but more just the stuff that you're talking about, right. This, the actual penalty, um, then, of course, and then there's this entire, as you say, billion dollar industry, right, of, of uh, you know, training courses. And and uh, I, I would argue um, it's funny, even even five or 10 years ago when I used to talk about education policy, I would say, oh, we need to modify and, and wind down the student loan program because it'll be better for us as, as those of us on the right, uh, because, you know, what bank is going to loan someone $120,000 to go study gender studies? Well, I have to revise that now. I mean. Um, this industry has gotten so big. It, you can you can have a very lucrative job uh, if if you your degree is essentially in the the, the latest cutting edge offenses. Uh, this is this is a very lucrative actually position, don't you think? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I, I used to think that people who majored in some of these grievance studies departments would not get jobs, um, but they do. They do these days. Um, you know, every major corporation, um, every every medium-sized corporation these days uh, has someone whose job it is um, to prevent these lawsuits. Um, and they've got a stake in making sure that that keeps going. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. When it comes to wokeness, you hear a lot of explanations. And I think these are useful explanations that, that follow the intellectual history um, of of wokeness starting, you know, early on. Uh, but it's always very important uh, to look at the incentives created by law, um, that it's true that, that culture, culture affects the law, but law also affects culture. Um, and over time, the legal incentives created by the 1991 Act um, have affected our culture. Um, 
and not always for the better. Um, the, the, the nice thing about the 64 Acts and its limited remedies is that it made sure that, yes, harassment cases could be brought, but they would have to be the ones that were quite serious, the ones that were so serious that they involved lost wages uh, or were so serious that it was worth it to the plaintiff to want an injunction. Um, now, quit. You know, uh, you know, to to quit uh, an entire job without having another one lined up. I mean, that itself is a pretty high standard. People, you know, that that's a vulnerable position to find yourself in. You're not going to do that unless the job you're at is is engaged in something, you know, quite awful. Exactly. And now we're in a situation where somebody can be fired for completely different reasons. Um, you know, they, they they're fired because they didn't show up for work on time, or they're fired for for any reason that would be valid and unrelated to Title Seven. But they're desperate at that point, uh, and they may be thinking to themselves, "Well, it may be that my firing had nothing to do with my race or sex, but I was harassed, um, and I still suffered emotional distress damages." Um, and well, maybe they sincerely believe that that's the case. Um, but even so. Um, that doesn't mean that we want to have a definition of what constitutes offensive conduct um, that is that is that is such that ordinary camaraderie uh, among among employees suffers. I mean, we are now in a world um, where that camaraderie is much more difficult to achieve, um, and that's not good for anybody. It's not good for women. It's not good for for for, for men. It's not good for for members of any race to have a situation where people feel like they're walking on eggshells at work. Um, in fact, there is data now um, showing that that male supervisors are less likely to want to, to, to mentor female employees uh, because they're worried. They're worried that something that they will, they will, they will say will be taken amiss. Um, they're worried um, in ways that I think are perfectly rational. Um, the same, I think, with race. Um, that, you know, we're in a situation where people think I will have to work on eggshells, walk on eggshells, uh, if we hire into this small office somebody from a different background, a different race, a different religion. Um, you don't want that. You know, you want, you want a situation where people can actually feel that their, their colleagues are their friends. Um. Let's let's get to the the enforcement piece of this, right? Let's talk about the EOC, EEOC, because so how a lot of these cases are not going through sort of traditional channels. Um, they're they're jettisoned and the what constitutes harassment and what doesn't, and like sort of hashing that out, right? So where does that come from? What's the EEOC, and how does this whole like bureaucratic agency fit into all of this? Oh boy, you know, back in 1964. Um, as I said, you know, Title VII was a big change, big change in the law. Um, it was a big change, particularly in, in the states that did not have such a law. Many states already had it. But at any rate, Congress figured there were going to be lots of lawsuits and they figured it would be expensive. Um, and that a lot of the people who were genuinely uh, discriminated against uh, would not have the resources to bring uh, an expensive lawsuit. Uh, they set up um, an agency the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC. And the idea was that the EEOC um, would be able to, to take in complaints. They call them charges, but, you know, it's just as easy to call them complaints uh, from employees that would not require a lot of procedure and that the EEOC employees would investigate and attempt to mediate um, the, the, the problem. Um, and, they're still there. They're big now. It's a, it's a big agency at this point. Um, but if you want to bring a, a lawsuit under Title VII, under the law, the first thing you have to do um, is to file um, a charge with the agency or with a state agency. You can't just bring your lawsuit uh, without having gone to the EEOC. So the EEOC now employs thousands of people, um, and they, they attempt to mediate these, these uh, disputes. Most of the cases that are brought to their attention, they find are not worthy um, of, of their, you know, they, they find no cause. Um, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of charges are filed um, that are not meritorious under the law. Um, but the thing is, 
no employer wants to even have to start down this road. Uh, they want to avoid this. Um, and so what tends to happen is that, that empl- you know, employers are trying to avoid even that first step because that's going to cost them money. They're going to have to have a lawyer go in and explain what happened. Um, and it, it creates an interesting dynamic um, that, that I think has been, been a big problem. And I think it's also a big problem for lawyers. I mean, you went to law school. I'm sure you remember that most of what you did was read judicial decisions. That's what, that's what law students do. That's what law professors teach from. They'll have a, a, a big book filled with all sorts of judicial decisions. But most of the law doesn't occur in court. Most of the law is, is, occurs down a little lower. Um, and, you know, at this point, for employers, the name of the game is don't let it even get started. Don't let it even, you know, be a charge that's filed with the EEOC. Um, and so everybody's trying to be, you know, in a situation where they're not even, it's not just they want to avoid um, ultimate liability. They don't want to, they don't want a case to be brought in court. And one step backward, they don't want a charge to be filed with the EEOC. And one step backward, they don't want to fight at all. Um, they don't want to have, have an employee even complain uh, within, within the internal offices um, that, that, um, that, the, that the company has. Um, and so that has created this, this dynamic towards let's avoid anything that is anywhere near harassment under the law that's anywhere near offensive. And, and you have a, a great law review article basically titled, I'm going to butcher it, but everything is presumptively illegal, right? Under title. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's dealing with disparate impact, which is yet yeah. another can we'll, of work. We'll get to that in a moment, but it just the headline is kind of what we're saying. We end up in the same place with the headline. But um, before we move there, I want to talk about some of these incentives to settle because um, I, I have a lawyer friend who um, has sort of been around the edges of some of these cases. Um, and he wanted to know uh, why it is that we don't or we don't have some sort of brave Republicans um, who might be willing to not only tweak some of the things like the the remedy side that you've been talking about, right, to put put some kind of limitation on what can be uh, punitive damages or or to, um, you know, actually go and try to define harassment in, in a more uh, sort of clear you know, bright line way that that companies wouldn't, you know, sort of need to constantly bend over backwards um, to avoid. But he, he also talked about um, the the pleading standards, right? Raising the pleading standards and saying, basically, uh, because there's such a recognizing that there's such an incentive for companies to settle, right? As soon as you get into just like discoveries where all they incur all the costs, they incur all the bad press, blah, 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 right? And so uh, there's such an incentive that it becomes very, very um, incentivized for, right? I don't want to use this word incentive too many times, but like it becomes a very tempting proposition. As you said earlier, for example, an employee that's fired for any reason, right? Anybody who's who's sort of looking for a payout um, to to like get in involved in one of these these litigations um, on the assumption that the company may just may well write them a six figure uh, settlement just to avoid the whole mess to begin with. So his suggestion, I'm wondering what you think about his suggestion of, of sort of um, making the, the pleading standards a little bit tighter. And he, he compared it to securities litigation. He said, you know, we recognize in other parts of the law that there's, there are these malincentives to get people into court. And therefore we have like slightly different levels of pleading standards for those cases. I like the idea. I think that 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 could help. It it won't help in this area as much as it would help in certain other areas because we have the EEOC um, and their their standard for the charges um, is is by design. It's way 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 down, much lower than what you'd see even in, in an ordinary court for for things for, for which there aren't high pleading standards. And I don't think it's going to be easy to change the the, the standard at the EEOC level, because the whole idea here is that you should be able to file one of these charges without having to hire a lawyer. I know people do hire a lawyer at that stage, but but given that, you'd get a lot of pushback on the notion of you're going to change the entire nature of the EEOC uh, if you have them um, demand high standards uh, of pleading. 
um, people file charges with the EEOC that, that just hardly say anything. And that gets the ball rolling in, in, in weird ways sometimes. Um, but I do think it would help um, to have higher pleading standards uh, at, the, at, the, at the court level. Uh, I think that would help. And you're right that, you know, what happens is, you know, employers, when they're sued, that makes the news. You know, particularly if it's a if it's a class action or a big case of, of any sort, that makes the news. What doesn't make the news is the stuff that happens uh, that it does not benefit women or minorities, where employers, unbeknownst to anyone, um, say, you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, hire the first woman into this department. We'd just be asking for the possibility um, of a, of a harassment lawsuit if it doesn't work out, um, and that worries me a lot. Or the, the 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 supervisors who don't tell anyone, but just don't mentor women because they're afraid if they are 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 seen as paying too much attention uh, to a female employee that it will be misinterpreted um, instead of a, a mentor mentee relationship. It will be interpreted as harassment, um, and you know that's that's stuff that doesn't get attention uh, because it happens. Um, in in such small ways that no one notices. Um, so I worry about about you know how we are going to deal with this. How are we going to get politicians to pay attention? And back in 1991, or I should say back in 1990, we almost had a politician that was that was careful about these issues, and it was President George H. W. Bush. Um, the first version of the 91 Act, he was urged by his, his top lawyers, uh, White House Counsel Boyden Gray and Attorney General um, Thornburg, to veto it. And he did. He vetoed the first version of, of, of that bill uh, that came to his desk. And just a few weeks later, um, they had the 1990 elections. Um, and as usual in a midterm election, the Democrats ended up, or rather the, the party that's not in the White House, ended up gaining a few seats in Congress. Um, and the newspapers reported that it was in part because of the veto. And his political advisors told him, oh, my gosh, you know, you lost votes because of the veto. Uh, don't do that again. You know, if there's another version, please sign it. Um, and although the attorneys were telling him, look, this is not a good bill. Um, the political advisors were saying, you got to sign it, you got to sign it. And he did. Um, and I think what's happened in the, the, the 30 years since then, politicians keep thinking that they will be punished if they, they, they don't, um, if they don't go along. And I think it's only in very, very recent years um, that more conservative um, elected officials are realizing that you can't go on forever. Um, simply going for whatever the far left wants. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess my next question is where do you think the politics of this will go? Because as you say, until recently, even opening like the word civil rights act, right. Um, and you have Republicans just running for the hills, right. Um, nobody wants to bring some of these modifications that you suggest, even though they're in some ways highly technical, right. They're, they're not, um, they don't even get into sort of the ideology of, of how we should treat each other, how we should deal with race in America. Some of these are just, you know, legal um, sort of incentives that are broad based across the whole like system that's been built up around this law and basically saying we have an incentive for bad actors. We have an incentive to settle. We have we have, we don't have an incentive to get to the truth of a lot of these cases. And instead, we've created a, a you know a system where everybody constantly has to cover their rear end um, and and you know has to to meddle in the affairs of their employees, making sure they cannot say anything that might be potentially offensive to anybody. Right? Um, that do you think that that there is something shifting? Um, certainly, I feel it on the right, um, sort of at the you know the people level, right? The voters level. I think people are really fed up with how far this has gone and this, this sort of regime and they feel intensely afraid to speak at work. I mean, some of these polls are 65% of, of Americans feel that they can't 
you know, um, express a contrary opinion, a controversial opinion, right? Um, and a large part of that is their employment. Um, some of it is all the ideological stuff that we always talk about, about, you know, um, shifting values. And I always talk about what's being taught in K-12 and so on and so forth. But a lot of it is just straight up incentive and fear, right? And they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs because the companies are policing this. Um, yeah. You know, do you, so I, I see the opening sort of on the, the popular level uh, to talk about some of these things once again, um, in a way that I didn't think that was possible five or 10 years ago. But on the other hand, I, you know, how many things have, have been discussed on the right, on the popular level and, you know, foundered on the shores of, of what, you know, Mitch McConnell was willing to, <laughs> willing to entertain. Um, where, where do you think that whole conversation is within the Republican party? And do you think there are people in the Republican party who might be more willing than in the past to reopen some of these legislative conversations? I think there are, um, you know, Republican leaders these days um, who are willing to 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 look carefully uh, at the incentives that our laws have created. Um, and on the other hand, um, on the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, the 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 the, the demands on, on the left are are worse than they've ever been. Um, so it's 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 more bipolar than it was before. For a while, you know, the, the left was dragging um, conservatives and moderates to the left, um, and the left is not any, you know, less demanding than it, than it was before. If anything, it's more demanding. Um, so, you know, there, there's going to be uh, substantial disagreement. Um, but is it possible that that we can come up with solutions here? I think it's possible, um, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard at this point. Um, um, so I want to turn to another one of your uh, expertise, your, your areas of expertise within Title VII, um, and that's disparate impact. Um, you have this this title I alluded to. I pulled it up. You know, Title VII disparate impact liability makes e- almost everything presumptively illegal. Um, it sure does. <laughs> and, and your abstract says it gives the federal bureaucracy extraordinary discretionary power. Um, and basically, uh, this this paper um, discusses basically how this disparate impact liability um, stemming from this Griggs case in 1971, how that has played out. And again, um, and, and how the 1991 law like intersected with it. Can you maybe tell the story of the Griggs case, disparate impact, and, and how that law in 1991 intersected with all of that, and then where we are now on disparate impact? Okay. Um, as we all know, Title VII uh, outlaws discrimination on the basis of race, color, um, religion, sex, and national origin. Um, and, you know, when you hear that word discriminate, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite clear from, from what was said on the floor of Congress and what's just what the word discriminate means. It's talking about people who are, are actually taking these, these issues into to account. Um, and whether they're doing it consciously uh, or unconsciously, they're treating people differently based on their race, sex, national origin, religion, or color. Um, but holy Toledo, in the, ni- in the early 1970s, uh, the Supreme Court decided a case called Griggs versus Duke Power Company. And law professors like to say, hard cases make bad law. And boy, is that ever the case with Griggs. Uh, the Duke Power Company, as soon as 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 um, as Title VII went into effect, it changed the rules uh, for how you could get hired. Uh, they were a North Carolina company. They had been discriminating um, on the basis of race prior to Title VII. No one denies that. You know, it was they they were making decisions based on race. Um, and when Title VII went into effect. Um, it it started to require um, a high school diploma for certain jobs and to require, um, you know, a, a, a passing grade in certain standardized tests that they would give um, in order to get jobs. Uh, and the argument was made, you're only doing this in order to exclude uh, African-Americans, uh, that African-Americans in this part of North Carolina were less likely to have high school diplomas. They were less likely to, to do well on, on the exam. And so the accusation was made that you're just doing this because you, you want to discriminate against African-Americans. But importantly, the trial judge found that wasn't true. 
And maybe the trial judge got it wrong. There's actually some evidence that the, the, the trial judge didn't get it wrong, but I'm inclined to think that, that the trial judge did get it wrong. So it goes up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can't change that. They can't, they can't disagree with the trial court's finding of fact. Um, so they go and they say something that, that has really been a big problem ever since. Uh, they say that it's not just a question of, of, of discriminating um, in the sense of treating people differently. Uh, it's also going to be a violation of Title VII um, if a, an employer picks a job qualification um, where people of one sex or one race will tend to do better um, than another race, another religion, another national origin group, um, unless unless the employer can prove that they have an absolute business necessity for doing so. Okay, now let's think about what that means. I have challenged many, many people, large crowds that I've spoken before. If you can think of a a job qualification that both sexes, every race, every religion, every national origin group does equally well at, then I will give $10,000 to your favorite charity because there is no job qualification um, for which, a job qualification that would really be used in the world for which there is no disparate impact on some group. You got to remember, it's not always the same group, um, but there are a lot of groups that are protected by Title VII. Um, For example, um, on strength requirements, this is going to come as a shock to you, but on average, men are stronger than women. Height requirements, on average, um, men are taller than women. Um, There are exceptions, of course. Um, College degrees. Asian Americans are more likely to have, for example, a a science, technology, uh, engineering, or mathematics degree, a STEM degree, than whites, uh, or than Latinos, or than African Americans. Um, Left-handedness or right-handedness. That was the one I thought, maybe that one does not have a disparate impact. Ah, but it does. Um, In certain cultures, um, it is common to try to discourage left-handedness still. And so those cultures tend to be disproportionately right-handed. So if there's a requirement that you be right-handed in order to operate certain machinery, that will have a disparate impact on those, those ethnicities, those national origins, where it's less common to discourage left-handedness. Um, and vice versa, if they need to be left-handed to get the job. Um, if you require any sort of college degree, you will find, for example, um, that Jewish Americans are more likely to have college degrees uh, than Jehovah's Witnesses. That is not meant to be a, 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 a statement that Jehovah's Witnesses uh, are somehow less worthy. I think it actually speaks very well for Jehovah's Witnesses that they are particularly likely to evangelize among groups that need a little extra help in the world. That's a good thing. That speaks you know, very well for the group, but they are less likely to have um, college degrees on average. There are plenty of exceptions um, over and over and over again. Um, my favorite example, and I'm sure lots of people have noticed this, what ethnic group is most likely to have experience Um, In the manicure industry, if I want to hire manicurists and I want three years of experience, what group is likely to be be advantaged by that? Can you guess? Vietnamese. Vietnamese Americans, um, because weirdly enough, there's a story behind that. Yeah, Um, I've read that story. It's a funny, it's like an American actress, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tippi Hedren, the woman who starred in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, she went to visit the refugee campus right after, uh, camp right after um, the fall of Saigon. And there were people who had escaped Vietnam um, at the end of the war there. And it was important to get people jobs as quickly as possible. And, you know, she's a movie star. They admired her manicure. She had lovely, lovely fingernails, and she got the idea of sponsoring a group of women um, to go to manicure school because it was a quick way to get a job. 
Um, the, the, the schooling doesn't require that much time. Um, and those young women then paid for their, their sisters and cousins uh, to go to manicure school. Um, and they became very entrepreneurial. And suddenly, boom, you know, they, they were dominating an industry here on the West Coast. Uh, and I think in m- many parts of the country right now. Um, so Vietnamese Americans are more likely to have that experience. Um, Hispanic Americans are more likely uh, to have um, to have jobs as as jockeys in high stakes horse races. Um, has to do with the build and and I suppose interest. But my point is everything, everything that actually is used to make a distinction between. Um, who gets a job and who doesn't get a job is going to have a disparate impact on some group. Um, so that means that anything that an employer does in terms of specifying what counts um, as, as you know, a qualification for a job they're trying to fill, it will always be presumptively illegal. Um, that's the world we live in. So these days, I don't know if you've noticed this. You're too young to have noticed this. But like 40 years ago, it used to be much more common for employers to have very specific job qualifications. So you knew whether you were going to qualify or not. Uh, They don't publish their qualifications now. They're silent about it uh, because they don't want to be told you can't do that. You can't do that. Um, And that has not been good for the country, I don't think. It makes it actually easier to hide discrimination. Um, But that's the world we're in. Uh, and the 1991 Act, uh, alas, um, is very clear from the legislative history that the Greeks' decision was 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 contrary to what Congress intended. It was a clear inter- misinterpretation of the Act. I mean, absolutely crystal clear. There's so much in the legislative history um, that shows that they wouldn't have intended this. They did not intend this. Um, but it became part of the law. Um, and unfortunately, Congress recognized it in the 1991 Act. There are some clauses in the Act that refer to disparate impact. Um, and as a result, it's going to be much harder to get the Greeks decision overturned. Um, so why, why do we have some, because as you say, everything, every requirement has uh, a disparate impact on someone. Um, why why is it that for example university degrees that seems to be the one thing that employers can put in in an ad right you could say uh bachelor's preferred right uh master's preferred um why why is it that that you know you know universities or, or that requirement employers do not get in trouble for putting in these university requirements um I know Michael Lind, for example, has proposed that actually as an act of jujitsu right um that when Republicans control uh, control the executive branch, that they start to apply disparate impact analysis on employers based on university requirements. Um, <laughs> so why why is it that like some things seem to remain, even though, as you say, there's no basis in the law to say that that's any better than putting in three years of experience or uh, can pass this aptitude test that has to do with you know the machinery that you're operating or something like that. It's very interesting. I mean, the 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 the, um, the remedies provision that we were talking about earlier, which makes makes it so that that plaintiffs can sue and get get serious money, they don't apply to disparate impact cases. Um, and so, disparate impact is mainly administered by the EEOC. And like, they will deny this, but you know, if you you if you ask me, um, the EEOC, which is usually controlled by people who are well left of center. Um, they pick and choose which disparate impact they want to go after. And like university degree, they like that one. Um, I think because like it's a democratic constituency, um, they, they think that it's, it's just fine to, to, to require uh, a college degree. Um, but it's, I don't see why that would be not a violation of the law. It seems very clearly that it is. Um, that there are very few jobs for which you can say there is a business necessity of requiring uh, a college degree. Um, and yet, and yet that tends to go, go, you know, tends to be something that they, they ignore. Um, on the other hand, um, what the EEOC has been, been very big on trying to stamp out um, is 
criminal background checks. Um, they don't want employers to be able to refuse to hire employees based on um, criminal convictions. Um, and they call that having a disparate impact based on race, uh, that African-Americans are more likely to have have felony convictions and therefore they should not be, be um, employers should not be able to, to, um, to say we won't hire people um, who have felony convictions. Um, that strikes me as a very odd um, approach. Uh, it's very clear why employers would want to have um, rules against hiring people um, with felony convictions. I understand why it's also important to make sure that people um, who have been to prison uh, and are now out, they need to be able to get jobs. But the best way to do that is to do it the way that Congress had been doing it up to, the, you know, for a while. And that is to have special subsidies that allow employers to, to get a tax deduction uh, for hiring somebody who's had a felony conviction. That way, the employers who are in the best situation to do that, they're the ones that make the decision to opt into the system. Uh, instead, we tell all employers, you can't have a rule um, against hiring people with felony convictions. Um, and that that strikes me as very bad policy, um, that employers are afraid that they can't turn down an, uh, an applicant uh, who has a felony conviction. Um, and that's that's a that's a formula for trouble. And it certainly would would cause members of Congress in 1964 who passed the who passed Title seven um, to, I think, just sort of faint in disbelief um, that that such an interpretation of the law were possible. Yeah, we're a long way from from 1964. Um Gail Harriet, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. I really recommend Gail's work, uh, not just on this sub subject, uh, which I think she's particularly critical on, and that's why we've spent this hour on it, but uh, she's also uh, written extensively about Title IX, about due process. Um, she's she's the one who, who predicted exactly the way that Vostok would go uh, and, and at a conference uh, a few years ago. Um, and, and we were all like, no, no, like, this is too ridiculous. And she was like, no, this is, this is, this is the law. Um, there's a plausible textual interpretation here. Um, and lo and behold, now we all have to deal with Bostock. Um, so, uh, she also has a number of books, the latest of which I believe is called A Dubious Expediency, How Race Preferences Damage Higher Education. Um, so she's, she's worked on issues of, of, um, affirmative action as well. And, and just has, really has her fingers in, in almost, uh, every issue of, of this sort of expanding civil rights regime um, that has burgeoned out. And so I think she has a very good case to, uh, um, to, to pinpoint for us uh, where exactly this sort of ideology that had been gathering steam, um, you know, culturally, where this ideology really tipped over and became this sort of institutional and tyrannical force that uh, many of us experience today. So Gail Harriet, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. It was a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you to our listeners. Uh, High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>